Well, we have as a duty as university lecturers and professors to tell the general public about the discoveries made in the academic settings. So that is one thing we have to do. And in my case, I, I'm very willing to do it. It's sort of interesting thing to do to give lectures for general public and to try to inform the general public of what we are doing. There is a responsibility among researchers, either yourself or someone in your team to take. If you have discoveries that could have a strong impact for clinical benefit, you have to make sure that this is being tested and validated for the university, for your early sort of funders of your project, that you make sure to one way or another get the new technology tested. I think patients deserve that and sort of the society deserve <laughs> that you do these efforts. The reason I became an economist was that I was interested in the problems that we see around us. When I started, that was when we had the the last big inflation wave in the early 1970s. And I wanted to understand that, I wanted to explain it, I wanted to help sort of guide or develop policy. It turns out that people want to know how football works. And so that's how I kind of ended up with that. And so I'm just kind of motivated by, here's a problem, let's see if we can make a mathematical model about it and find how it works. And you've got to justify that as well. So you've got to talk to people. I mean, if it's an interesting problem for you, it's got to be interesting for other people. And so that's why I then communicate and work on problems that people are interested in. Welcome to SCAFS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This is an episode in the series SCAFS Talks Spotlight, where we focus on a specific topic or event. My name is Nathalie van der Leer, and in this episode I have collected some voices and thoughts about the event Opening the Ivory Tower Wide, which was organized in the framework of the theme Measurable Human within the Natural Science Program at SCAFS. The symposium was organized by Nina Schille, Erik Ulleros, Christopher Rubin, and Ulf Landegren. The two central university missions, research and teaching, have long been complemented by an aim for public outreach and the charge to spread knowledge and research results to the broader society. The symposium consisted of two days. Day one, with a smaller crowd gathered at SCAS for roundtable discussions. And on day two, everybody who wanted to listen and participate in the discussions was welcome to the Biomedical Center in Uppsala. The discussions spanned over a wide variety of outreach activities, such as the path from academic research to industry, turning research findings into policy advice and treatment guidelines, popular science, and how to deliver impact while still maintaining academic freedom. In this episode of SCAS Talks Spotlight, I have invited Evelina Vogesha, David Samter, Kalle Heldin and Lars Kalmfors for a conversation in the studio. Gunnar Ingelmann and Sven Wiedmann tell us more about the history behind the tight collaboration between Uppsala University and Pharmacia, and I have talked to Shirin Albeck Erbeck about academic freedom and to Petter Brodin about the gap between research and clinical practice. Last but not least, two of the organizers of the symposium, Nina Schille and Ulf Landegren, sum up two eventful days with their reflections. 
We start off in the SCAF studio with Evelina Vogescher, David Samter, Kalle Heldin and Lars Kalmfors. So welcome to this special episode of SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. Let's start with a round of introduction. Yes, hi, I'm Evelina. I'm CEO and co-founder of Ilia Pharma, and I took my research from Uppsala University into this company. I'm David Sumter. I'm professor of applied mathematics here at Uppsala University, and I've done outreach in lots of different ways. I've written books, and I also run a company, 12, which looks at how we can analyze football with use of mathematics. So I'm Cal Heldin. I'm a cancer researcher here at Uppsala University. So we try to elucidate which are the molecular mechanism whereby a normal cell is transformed to a cancer cell. And we hope to be able to use such knowledge to develop treatment regimens for cancer patients. Lars Kalmfors, I'm a professor of international economics. done research mainly on uh, macro theory and uh, labor economics. Also been very much involved in uh, policy advising in, in various capacities as an advisor to the government, for instance. Yes, so during this symposium, we have heard a lot and we'll hear even more about outreach and impact on society, moving your research outside of what we call here the ivory tower outside of the academia and bringing it to more people. So um, how did you do it when you implemented your research in some other areas? Shall we start with Evelina again? You started a company, so tell us more about that process. Yeah, so we discovered a new uh, mechanism of action for immune cells in injured tissue. And then we thought about how to develop tools to steer this behavior, which resulted in new drug candidates. So it's in pharmaceutical development. Patents are very important in this. And for this, you need a company, you need financing, and you need to run clinical trials to generate evidence. So I, of course, still see it as we are still in research, but it's commercial research and it's commercial clinical research. So that's the environment I work in now. So we have collaborations with academia, which is extremely important, but also other companies. Yeah, so I think in my case, I was more interested in communicating about mathematics and how we could model things using mathematics. And that was really my starting point. I wanted to write a book and I wrote to an agent in London and he thought that my idea, because I wanted to write about my work in collective animal behavior, how fish interact with each other and birds and so on. And he thought that didn't sound very interesting. And I had one example to do with football. And he said, that's where you want to focus. So I ended up writing a lot about football and wrote a book, Socomatics. And from there, once I'd written the Socomatics book, then I've been able to write other books that have been all about how you apply mathematics and how you can use it. But the football has always has stayed because I continued. And in the end, I did set up my own company because there was so much interest. I've been to Barcelona. I've talked to analysts at Liverpool. And I've had a really kind of hands-on experience with Hammerby Football Club where they've actually asked us and we've helped them do analysis using those tools. So... I've kind of like fallen into that part of it. I mean, maybe you fell in the same way into starting up a company because there was interest in, in, those, in those areas. So when we have elucidated the signaling pathways that are perturbed in cancer cells and made important discoveries, we have patented those. And then we have tried to establish contacts with the other companies that could sort of use these targets for drug development. 
I have not uh, started my own company, but I have sort of remained an academic researcher, but collaborated with industry. In economics, we can't take any patents, I guess. That's quite difficult. Although I do have my own company now after I became a uh, professor emeritus. But the reason I became an economist was that I, I was interested in the problems that we see around us. When I started, that was when we had the the last big inflation wave in the early 1970s. And I wanted to understand that. I wanted to explain it. I wanted to help sort of guide or develop policy. And then we have an old tradition, I think a very good tradition in, in economics, where economists have always been involved in the public debate. I mean, that goes back to Knut Wicksell, Gunnar Myrdal, Bertil Olin, and Asa Lindbeck, who was my supervisor. And I wanted to sort of do similar kind of applied work as he did. So that was very important for me. That leads me to the question, of course, I mean, why do you do this? I mean, sometimes it's more work, it can be complicated and all these kind of things. Um, but you still do something else outside your, or you want your academic research to, to do something out there in society. Why do you think this is important? Well, we have as a duty as university lecturers and professors to tell the general public about the discoveries made in the academic settings. So that is one thing we have to do. And in my case, I, I'm very willing to do it. It's sort of interesting thing to do to give lectures for general public and to try to inform the general public of what we are doing. I mean, in social sciences, as I said, I mean, we, we are very much focused on the problems that we see around us. And for an economist, we all the time have these problems. I mean, it was inflation in the 1970s. Then there was a big financial crisis in Sweden in, in the early 1990s. Uh, lots of unemployment became very, very high. Then for me, it was the uh, question whether Sweden should join the monetary union. Then we had the global financial crisis. And uh, well, then a long period with too low inflation, the corona crisis. And now we're back to inflation. That's where I started. So now the same problems again. That is what I always wanted to contribute to. I mean, in social science, we should be motivated by the problems we see around us. And then public outreach is a very natural thing. There is a responsibility among researchers, either yourself or someone in your team to take. If you have discoveries that could have a strong impact for clinical benefit, you have to make sure that this is being tested and validated for the university, for your early sort of funders of your project, that you make sure to one way or another get the new technology tested. I think patients deserve that and sort of the society deserve <laughs> that you do these efforts. Yeah, I think if Evelina's on the responsible side, I'm kind of the irresponsible one because, I mean, I started being an academic because I didn't want to get a proper job. And that's just because I was always interested in solving problems, a bit like Lars was saying. I was interested in how things work. And I found that mathematics was a kind of tool for working out how bird flocks work, how fish schools work, how ant colonies work, how different things I worked in society as well, how those things work. And really, that's just what's led me. And then, yeah, when you communicate outwards, then it turns out that people want to know how football works. And so that's how I kind of ended up with that. And so I'm just kind of motivated by here's a problem, let's see if we can make a mathematical model about it and find how it works. And you've got to justify that as well. So you've got to 
talk to people. I mean, if it's an interesting problem for you, it's got to be interesting for other people. And so that's why I then communicate and work on problems that people are interested in. For me, it was also another thing. I mean, my, my mother had studied economics. We had lots of political discussions in our family, and she always won the discussions. So I, I realized, I mean, before knowing what economics was, I realized that's a good thing if you want to win a discussion. It's interesting because my mom is also very ins inspirational for me because she was a very argumentative person and always refused to like back down in any argument and would always have like the right answer for things. So I had to work very hard in those kinds of discussions. For who do you do things if not for your mothers, right? <laughs> But when you do this sort of things to do something else than just being in your research and doing um, your specific projects, what would you need or what have you gotten in terms of infrastructural support and also incentives? And I'm also wondering a little bit what reactions also you get from your colleagues when you engage in these other activities. Well, I could start if no one else has uh, anything to say. I'm sure you have much to say, but... You get more time to think. I think in my profession, we are very much helped by an existing infrastructure. It is there. I mean, there are a number of think tanks. The Minister of Finance has always had sort of advisors, sometimes advisory councils. They had that in the 1990s. They have started with that again now. Then we have something called the Fiscal Policy Council, which was set up with the explicit aim of evaluating government policy. To what extent does it succeed to attain the goals that politicians themselves have, have set up? So for economists, and I guess that's for other natural reasons, there do exist various types of bodies. There does exist an infrastructure, which is very helpful to promote the discussion between policymakers and scientists. So in my case, I was employed by um, Cancer Research Institute. And they had a very active patenting policy. And they helped me to uh, take patents when we discovered something that was patentable. And I think that if you work within the university, you are dependent on some help in that respect from the technology transfer offices. And you may ask yourself why patents is so important. Aren't they a hinder when it comes to moving discoveries to the general public? But the reality is that without patent protection, the pharmaceutical industry will not invest money to develop discoveries into drugs or other inventions. So we are depending on that. And for that process, we really need help from the technology transfer offices. So I also got a lot of help and support from the innovation infrastructure in Uppsala, but also then later on in Europe and now more globally on different type of scale up programs. So I also definitely think that the infrastructure is there. I think Uppsala was extremely efficient for patents. Maybe still are. I'm sure they are. But what I'm most sort of grateful to is how we got help as a team to set the expectations for a growth journey for our company. From day one, we knew how focused we had to be. We knew approximately what would happen each year, which means that we had a mindset of growth and success to start with. And that, I hope, is becoming more and more common, that you're educated on this by the infrastructure around academia. Yeah, I didn't want to start because I have a much more negative take on everything. I mean, I think from what I wanted to do, I think if you're going to start a company and make money, 
then the university are helpful in that way. But what my primary aim was to communicate about the beauty of my subject. And unfortunately, I can say that I've had pretty much zero help from the university there. Of course, I'm really privileged. I have my job and my position. But nobody's ever said, you know, you can have some time to write these books. I get up at six o'clock in the morning and write them. Well, I don't know, it probably impinges a little bit on my working day, I have to be honest there. But that sort of thing hasn't really been forthcoming. And I haven't really found a way to actually get help and financing to do some of the public communication things I'd like to do. So I think that you're left a lot on your own. If it's not involving doing patenting or starting up a company, you're left a lot on your own, as far as my experience has been in any case. Can I ask them, because we talked about freedom today, and you also asked, like, how did your colleagues perceive you? So for me, how the colleagues at the department perceived this project is not important because we kept it confidential, Mm. of course. I also worked a lot night times, mm. weekends on this. And uh, for me, it's uh, beauty in having that freedom in being very flexible, I guess, that I really appreciate. Exactly. So I'll have to be honest about the positive side. Once you're an academic, you have that freedom and you have the ability to think in different types of ways. So definitely, I think I'm thinking about concrete help with like creating web pages coming out to the public, booking meetings to actually talk to people. So I've had other external parties who've helped me with those types of things, but the university haven't been particularly helpful in those types of situations. You would have needed an administrative person that, that exactly. would have helped so you to... Precisely. That's exactly what was was missing. Now I'm really going into moaning mode. <laughs> I don't know. I hope that university aren't listening. But there was lots of administrative people who came to me and said, come and do this for Uppsala University. This important person's coming, come and do a talk for them and so on. And that's great. You know, I'm not complaining about that. But the things that I would like to have driven in terms of public communication, I got no administrative help with that. And I wasn't actually sure how to find financing for that sort of thing. It doesn't seem clear that there is financing. I know that you're nodding your head, Natalie, as well, because I know that you do a lot of public communication. It's very hard to find financing for that type of public communication. And so I've been able to do it because I have this great job as a professor. But otherwise, the help past that hasn't been particularly much. No, but it's very rare that the, that the public like asks for more and more information. So, Well, it's not rare that the public is desperate. In uh, mathematics, for example, the public is desperate for information about this. There's lots of YouTubers who are online doing this type of thing. And very few of them are financed. Even if you've got like millions of followers on YouTube doing maths videos, it's very hard to actually make a profit doing that sort of thing. So there isn't a lot of financing of these really important projects that we could have talking about mathematics and educating the public about what we do. And is that because it's a new format? Yeah, I think I think it's, yes, it's possibly because it's a new format. So there are, for example, for mathematics, this in particular, but I'm sure it's true for all areas, there's something called Numberphile, which has like 10 million followers and they make videos. But all of that is self-financed. There's people who make illustrative videos about how to learn mathematics and so on. Again, millions of people who watch these things. In that case, it's a professor who's just set up himself to do these videos. And I don't know that how much administrative help he's had with that, but I haven't felt that the university or many universities think about these sorts of things, that we could actually spread and teach our courses very widely in highly engaging types of formats. It's really left up to individual researchers to do that if they like to. PhD students often do it. 
often un other undergraduate students do these types of things. I think it's a shame the university world doesn't seem to have really said that we should be leading this. We should be kind of spreading the word. Yes, because nowadays, I mean, you have so many technologies also and so many possibilities to to reach out to people. Yeah, I mean, the and the university want to format, they, everything wants to be formatted around promoting, you know, Uppsala University or whatever university is doing it. It doesn't quite fit into that kind of Wild West internet world where my son just goes in, you know, I've got a son who's 16, he just goes in and watches a video and then watches another one and doesn't really care who's producing it, it just cares if it's interesting and engaging. Well, I should be honest and say that uh, it's not so common that uh, you're asked to give lectures about your own research. And when it happens, you're very happy to grab that opportunity to, to spread a little bit of the interest that we have feel ourselves for our research areas. I've been thinking a lot about the, the interplay between communication and your own research. Mm -hmm. And for me, that has always been extremely important. I think I have got lots of good research ideas from first doing research and then presenting research for a wider audience. And in social sciences, I think it's, it's very, very important. I mean, we, we study the behavior of human beings. And if we can't explain our models to the subjects that we, or objects that we study, then there's some problem with the models. And I've been doing research, for instance, on wage bargaining and found it extremely worthwhile to discuss with wage bargainers themselves to test the ideas. And then you get new ideas back from them that you can take to your, your research. In the end, sort of research about wage bargaining, if we take that as an example, you, sh you should be able to merge that with the experiences that people have that work in these fields. And I find this interplay extremely rewarding and interesting. I mean, many economists set up models, but they never discuss them with the, the objects that, the, that we study. I think we, we must do that. And it's very good for research to do that. I think that's one of the things that I loved working in football, because suddenly you've got like 10 seconds to explain something to a football coach and really short time span in which you've got to explain some very complicated idea, either visually or Maybe 10 seconds is a bit of an exaggeration, but it's those types of, you know, can you explain it in 10 seconds? Can you explain it in one minute? Can you explain it in 10 minutes? And can you get things. them to, to understand it and, exactly. and sort of confirm yeah. that, that you're on the right track? So you've really got to be speaking their language. And I've worked also with football players directly. So talking about these things and they don't have any educational background, most of them, but they understand the game and they understand spatial concepts. How can you communicate with them very clearly and directly what is actually a quite complicated artificial intelligence model that you've built, how football players interact? How can you communicate with them? And I, I found that a really interesting challenge. And, and are you on the right track, according to them? I think so. Yeah, no, they, they really, I mean, the meetings I've had with football players in particular, we work with both the men and the women's team at Hammerby. They get very engaged with it because we're studying them. We're showing them pictures of their movements and where they're opening up space for each other and then they can talk with their teammates about it and they they understand the models very quickly and do they sometimes tell you that you're on the on the wrong track oh yes <laughs> no, all the time i mean that's fantastic feedback you get for example one thing i learned from football players is just their incredible memory for what happened during the game you show them any clip 
And they said, well, I came here. I was thinking that he's going to come here and that he's going to come here behind me. And so then I did this because I thought that this was going to happen. And if it didn't, so that's why I made that mistake. Sometimes they're making up, of course, and, you know, we remember poorly what's happened to us before. But I, I do believe that they have just this incredible memory for the, the events that have occurred. When I played, I just remembered my scores. <laughs> <laughs> but there's variation in this. I mean, there's some players, some of the best players just go entirely on intuition. Some of the players who've had to work harder, then they're more interested in learning these types of things. I'm thinking a little bit about a patient perspective, Evelina. How do you take that into consideration when you do your work and also what kind of feedback do you get back from them? We are in cell and gene therapy, so it's a little bit more biotech. And then I find it more helpful to learn about management techniques and techniques and methods for evaluation from the tech field than from the traditional pharma. So we have uh, engaged with patients users, the nurses and clinicians, as well as the payers very early on, even before we started clinical testing, which is, I don't know if it's unusual. I think it should be more and more common, but I think it's more common for cell and gene therapy where payment models are maybe not always established for all these new technologies. And then I think uh, to be successful, you have to clear out any question mark whether it is perception of the product, does it feel scary to have a live bacteria as your pharmaceutical agent or um, how to just handle the product? Yeah, the, the perception of, of new technologies in a traditional field. So we work quite a lot with that. I think patients can be very engaging as well. So whenever we've had either me or some of the other researchers had a presentation where we explain what we do, where we are in the stage of development. We have patients and if it's children, it's always the grandmothers that contact us with how they wish that there were better treatments. I mean, that's a big responsibility, but I also feel a huge engagement from some patients at least, and it's very helpful for us. Patients have a lot more ideas because they've all seen like YouTube and read newspaper articles and they have ideas about how they should be treated now. Do you do you find that as a, a problem or a challenge? No, I think they are a very big part in um, disrupting the field mm. because I think the power goes more and more to the patient. I normally think if I had this disease, what would I have wanted the, the healthcare to be able to provide? And I think it's, it's definitely a, a movement of more power to the users. Mm. What about you, Carla? The research you do is basic research. We don't know when your results and your patents will result in new treatments or so. How do you think there? I started in medical school, but I've done research all my career, so I don't see any patients myself. But of course, it's a big inspiration for us to sort of aim at trying to be useful for treatment of patients with severe diseases, including cancer, which is my own interest. When we work in the laboratory, of course, we realized that the process from making a discovery, which may sort of lead to uh, targeting a specific molecule, potentially helping cancer patients, and to bring that to the clinic is a matter of a very long time and a lot of developments and rather low chance of success in the end. But we have to work on and do uh, what we can. And um, even though we cannot really be sure that what we do will in the end be 
useful and having a sort of an impact on patient treatment. We have to believe that at one time we may succeed. In the discussion, something came up. Who do we do research for? Sometimes you hear the phrase that Swedish research should make Sweden more competitional or more stronger country. I think, Lars, you had some reflections on that. I've been involved in um, evaluations of uh, the former wage earner funds, like the the, the Foundation for uh, Strategic Funds. They put a lot of emphasis on um, strengthening Sweden's international competitiveness. First, it's not so easy to define exactly what is international competitiveness. That's one problem. But, But I've always had the problem with sort of this aim that Research should, to a very large extent, promote the interest of Sweden in competition with other countries. I more see it as we we are contributing to the international community. I mean, we are part of an international research community, and we want to add to scientific knowledge for for its its own sake and for the benefit of, of mankind. That sounds perhaps uh, a bit too much, but I mean, that, that is basically, I think, what, what we should do and think less about international competitiveness that we can leave to others. I've never taken that seriously, though, that they say that. It's the first time I've actually really thought, because you always read that on the, when you make a grant application and you have to fill in a thing about that or whatever. I've actually never taken that seriously. Good. But many politicians take it, okay. take it extremely seriously. I mean, Well, of course, science doesn't have any borders. and We all work sort of on a global scene and we have a lot of networks with scientists in many countries. And I agree with you, Lars, that it is, this is the way it should be. On the other hand... In order to develop a knowledge-based economy in our own country, we really need to invest in science, in scientists, and to uh, have that sort of as one part of building a strong society that can produce uh, both uh, well-being and uh, jobs and so forth for the population here. The aim is not to compete with other countries. We should join forces with them. We cannot be laid back and hope that others will do the work for us. I agree, I mean, that it's an objective to create growth and uh, sort of good conditions in Sweden. But that's an aim in itself. It doesn't have to do with competition, really. Then, of course, competition can be a good good thing in the sense that it makes us work harder. But that's something else. Yeah, that's something else. Competition in science is both good and bad, I would say. And in football, I mean, it's a similar situation. (laughs) (laughs) But competition means that whatever research results we publish and present and claim that we have found will immediately be controlled by other groups that we are competing with, which is good. It's healthy because that makes science robust. If we make a mistake, it will be corrected by sort of our competitors. And likewise, we will correct what our competitors publish, which may not be completely solid. So so in that sense, competition is good. I agree. Do you have any concluding remarks or anything you would like to add to bringing your science outside the ivory tower? I, I could add something which may be a bit specific to social sciences and economics and It's again this interplay between, say, advising or public debate and research that often as a social scientist and an economist, you're asked about the view on some specific problem. 
And then you draw on the, the existing research. I mean, you can't come up immediately with new research. And sometimes there's a demand, I mean, that decisions have to be made. So you have to take a stand based on, on, on existing knowledge. But then often that makes you think, I mean, how, how solid is the research? Mm. And then it's, a, it's a sort of good, good inspiration. And really to check, was it okay, what the, the conclusion that, that you drew? And that, that has often helped me find new sort of research questions. Then, of course, the problem is if you find out that your initial statement was not sort of the optimal one or best one, then you must really dare to be public about uh, new insights that might revise the conclusions that you have drawn earlier. And that's not always easy, I mean, because you, you don't want really to say that you were completely wrong. I think there's an interesting dynamic, sir. I personally don't really like the metaphor of ivory tower. I've never felt that I sit in an ivory tower. I very much felt that I'm part of the society and what we are doing is relevant for society and that we have very fruitful interactions with people outside of the university. I would like to say that, I mean, research can be done in many different forms, in collaborations, different structures, and that that's important to be open-minded about. This comes back to your question earlier about what my colleagues thought about me communicating more. One problem I had actually coming back after doing a lot of this thing was what I thought about my colleagues' works, because a lot of what research is, is you get sort of stuck into a little problem and you're sitting there and that problem becomes extremely important. And there's seven other people in the world who you're writing to backwards and forwards and trying to solve that problem. And you come back after you've been talking more outside and then you think these problems weren't as relevant or as important as I once thought. And so I have actually had some problems coming back to some of those problems that I thought were important. Now I realize they're not actually that important. Thank you very much for joining me here in the studio and talking to me. And yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you. <laughs> One success story often told in Uppsala is that of the tight collaboration between the Department of Biochemistry at Uppsala University and the pharmaceutical and biotech company Pharmacia. The grounds for this fruitful collaboration was laid by Arne Tiselius and his PhD student Björn Ingelmann. Gunnar Ingelmann, the son of Björn Ingelmann, was going to tell the story of how his father Björn Ingelmann and his supervisor Arne Tiselius collaborated with Pharmacia. Unfortunately, Gunnar Ingelmann was ill, so he asked Ulf Landegen to tell the story at the symposium. But now, for this podcast episode, we could connect for a distant recording to get a short version of the story. Sven Wiedmann, Professor of History of Science and Ideas at Uppsala University, joined us for this conversation to also give his perspective. My name is Sven Wiedmann. I'm a professor of History of Science and Ideas at Uppsala. My name is Gunnar Ingelmann. I'm a professor in subatomic physics here at Uppsala University. So my father, Björn Ingelmann, he started as a graduate student uh, in 1941 with Arne Tiselius as supervisor. 
And he quickly got into studies of macromolecules and in particular the polysaccharide dextran, which is a long, long chain of glucose molecules. And he wanted to have a, a sensitive test for that molecule. So he purified it and then injected it in rabbits and there was hoping for it to produce antiserum as a sensitive test. But the rabbits didn't respond at all, no reaction. So it wasn't antigenic, which was, in a sense, not unexpected because the molecule was just a long chain of the sugar molecules. But this led to the idea that maybe one could use this macromolecule as a blood plasma substitute for a shock treatment. And remember, this was in wartime, so this was an important thing. So... Uh, he started to develop that idea together with Anders Grönvall, who had just joined that department. He had a PhD from Lund University in Medicine, and they happened to share the same lab space. And already in uh, late 1943, they made the first clinical tests. And later on in '47, this led to the introduction of Macrodex as a blood plasma substitute uh, from the company Pharmacia. And it's important to note that both Grönvall and my father had other jobs, actually. They were working on other projects. But Arne Tiselius was very open that they could do, work on other things also. And he supported them strongly and also helped them in getting in contact with the uh, medical doctors for the tests and the company Pharmacia. So this became a big product, actually. And this was also the reason why the company Pharmacia moved from Stockholm to Uppsala in 1950. And there was a long following story with the different uh, development projects and uh, new projects of uh, various kinds, not just in medicine, but for uh, biochemistry, for example which uh, one can learn a lot from. So what I see as the important thing is that they got actually a very big freedom, the two young researchers, and follow up their own uh, tracks, so to say, or ideas, and also help from Arnetis Elius and the very good equipment that was in the Svedbergs Elius laboratory so they could actually develop this. And that's an important lesson to learn. Mm, yeah, very interesting. Um, this example came up several times, actually, during the symposium. A lot of people refer to the Uppsala University and Pharmacia collaboration. And Sven, you also took this up in your talk, which had the title Close, but not too close. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? The talk was in a session on... Um academic freedom and impact. I guess the idea was to focus on the tensions between what Gunnar just talked about, academic freedom. When we talk about academic freedom, we mean that you have a choice to some extent, what to work on. Everything is not decided by your boss or by the founders or by politicians. Whereas at the same time, it's expected that you do something that's useful, that might uh, lead to innovation and uh, in the longer run, um, perhaps economic growth and so on. And the collaboration between the Biochemical Institute and Pharmacia and Uppsala is one of the best examples of how such a collaboration can work. But it's also an example of how it 
could in the final end not work anymore because the collaborators, pharmacia and the academic scientists, so to speak, got too close to one another. Well, I mentioned an example which is important, and that's um, Cephadex, which was a product. The substance used was the same as in Macrodex, which Gunnar talked about, that is Dextran. It, it was discovered in the 19, mid-1950s that Dextran could also be used for molecular sieving, that is to separate chemical substances, most importantly proteins, and this became a huge product for pharmacia. And the person who was mainly responsible for this discovery in the 1950s at the Biochemical Institute, Jarkir Purath, continued to collaborate very closely with pharmacia, developing new methods of separation. And uh, for a number of years, very successfully in that a number of products also were launched because of this collaboration. But by the 1970s, Porat had become quite disillusioned with this collaboration because he didn't think the scientists got credit for their work. That's important for scientists. You have to get credit, otherwise you're not going to make it as a scientist in an academic context. He also thought they got too little money. And by then, the Institute had come to focus only on technological development, separation science, as it was called. So the kind of openness and academic freedom that had been characteristic for the Institute under Tisselius disappeared. And this was a conscious decision. You should focus on what's already successful. Even Tisselius said that. And he was still a professor when this happened. New important areas like molecular biology emerged, microbiology and so on. So the scientists who were interested in the latest scientific developments fled the department and some also went to pharmacia, possibly because they got better pay. By the mid-1970s, the department had sort of lost its innovative capacity because of this development. So academic science had sort of been transformed to almost sub-department of pharmacy, and that didn't end very well. Yes, very interesting. Do you have any comment, Gunnar? My reaction is that I think that it would not have happened in that way if the young researcher would have been given more freedom, perhaps. And I see this in other circumstances also. So, for example, you can see in senior people's uh, CVs that they list their postdocs in the same way as they list their graduate students, uh, PhD students. And this gives the impression that the uh, postdocs are uh, treated like graduate students to work on the senior person's uh, project. And that surprised me, actually, because I thought that a postdoc by definition, is a grown-up scientist with a doctor's degree, and they should have a lot of freedom to work on uh, what they want to, and, and be given that freedom that my father was given, and also that I was given when I was a graduate student. And I'm a bit afraid that maybe the development has gone in the direction of that it's more of leadership from seniors because everything is more related to big grants and uh, maybe has to do a bit with the financial system 
I'm not sure about these things, but I think that is actually things that one should investigate systematically in order to see whether we are going somewhat in the wrong direction. Because there is a lesson to be learned from what Sven was uh, mentioning. Yes, and I can corroborate that things are going in this direction in many sciences, and to some extent it's moving in that direction in the humanities as well, but not at all as massively as in many sciences, where postdocs nowadays actually have supervisors. I've seen that on a number of occasions, that professors are said to be a supervisor. You can work as a postdoc for many years in the biomedical sciences without actually ever be given the autonomy to do something that you yourself have invented or to develop your own ideas and so on. It's a bit like an academic proletariat that has developed in some areas at least, where you move as a postdoc from lab to lab, from group to group, without ever being able to settle down. That's a big problem in, to my mind. If we go back to the collaboration between universities and the industry in today's setting and given today's conditions, what should we think about? What is important? Well, I think we should think about transparency. I think it's dangerous if the university become too entangled in collaborations with industry where you don't have transparency because that is a threat to the trustworthiness of science. We have seen that a lot in recent years, not so much in Sweden as in other countries, but the idea that science is not to be relied upon because it is more or less bought by economic interests or by political interests has been spreading like wildfire lately and we have to watch out so that doesn't happen in Sweden as well. So I think transparency is extremely important that you have a set of a kind of code of conduct in place which you're supposed to follow if you become deeply involved with collaboration, not only with industry really, but with any kind of stakeholders. The maintenance of academic freedom is crucial for academic research. According to the Higher Education Act in Sweden, and I quote, higher education institutions must operate under the general principle that academic freedom must be promoted and protected. Research issues may be freely selected, research methodologies may be freely developed, and research results may be freely published." End of quote. Shirin albeck Erberg, professor of political sciences at Uppsala University, had given this some thought, and I got to chat with her during the coffee break. My name is Shirin Albeck Öberg. I'm a professor of political science here at the Uppsala University. The first thing is that we have to be very distinct when we talk about academic freedom. What does it really entail? And I was actually proposing something that is also supported both academically and in policy. And that is that we have to make a distinction between institutional autonomy and individual autonomy. Often we refer to the individual autonomy as academic freedom. That is the right to choose what to study and how to study it and what kind of conclusions to be drawn and so on. 
But the thing is that is important is that we need to focus on the um, institutional setting too. That means the university's legal status and financing of the university activities and so on, which really has an impact for the individual autonomy of researchers and teachers. And the thing is, with the Swedish case, is that we are labeled as just any public authority. One important take-home message here is that that's not a really good thing because that makes us very vulnerable for political steering, actually. And this is also the way, I would say, that representatives of government government offices talk about us. They talk about their public authority. But the universities and the colleges, they are not just any central government agency. We really need to have our independence guaranteed from detailed political steering. So uh, my proposition is that we need to put down in the constitution or in general law about the institutional autonomy, which is a safeguard for political steering. And also we need to see to that when it comes to individual autonomy, the only type that is actually laid down in law is for research in a proper way that is in the constitution. And I think we need to have this formulated also for teaching or education and also collaboration, actually, all the tasks of the university. And let me be clear, this doesn't mean that I don't think that the government has a rightful or legitimate right to monitor what's going on. Of course, they should do it. But it's the level of intensity and the level of detail that I'm talking about here. What should we watch out for in academia, thinking about academic freedom? I mean, in Sweden, we have this idea that we are still very free and there are more problems than other countries. What should we be aware of here? Firstly, I would say, well, you know, it might feel like, well, it's sort of working anyway, even though we don't have these constitutional guarantees or the financial part. I haven't even touched that really, but that's something to dig into too. But the thing is, we cannot have this kind of important democratic institutions modeled for beautiful weather kind of steering. I mean, what we see in the world around us is that it's becoming more right-wing authoritarian or actually the kind of opinions it's pushed forward, which challenge the idea of the university as an independent source of knowledge and so on. My idea is that we have to build these kind of very important institutions to be able to handle really strong challenges as well. And I think we're living in a different world today than we did like 40 or 50 years ago. And we need to realize that. You address the lack of time. Researchers are burdened with a lot of tasks nowadays and mm. they might not have the time to think or to do the research they want to do. Is that how do I interpret this correctly? What did you mean with the lack of time? I think it's really, really important that we in the university system and in the universities and colleges that we start to discuss the preconditions for exercising our profession. What I mean by that is that we shouldn't just be captured by trying to publish and everything. We, we need also to defend the very idea of the university 
and understand why it's important in a democratic system and how we best can take care of academic values and, and protect academic values from other types of values, for example, management values or whatever it is. But the thing is that we have so many things, tasks to attend to, that the time for actually some kind of professional consideration, discussion and so on isn't really part of our everyday life. And that makes us very vulnerable for political steering because if things are launched, we need to react and we need to formulate. So why we think certain things are not a good idea for a university system and so on. This is something that dawned upon me after the uh, autonomy reform in 2011, that we were not really defending, for instance, collegial bodies, that they should stay in the Higher Education Act. We need to mobilize intellectually much better about the university and our profession. More discussions about science and doing science. Exactly. If I could wish for something, it's not only improvement from the government side when it comes to the conditions for universities and or public universities and colleges in Sweden. I would like colleagues also to be more attentive to the conditions for our profession. What about the rest of the session, which was upon academic freedom? What did you take with you from the other speakers? Sven Widmalm had a really important point that when we talk about academic freedom, we're not talking about the pre-war conception of it with the strong and sometimes evil professor who is ruling. We're talking about contemporary way of organizing the university. So I think that that was important. I also like the focus on collaboration because I'm in a field where it would be almost impossible to do research if I didn't have a good contact with the people or the practice of what I'm studying. So I think that was good too. Researchers who are also medical doctors can easily see how their research methods and findings could be used in the clinic. Petter Brodin, professor of pediatric immunology and pediatrician at Karolinska Institutet, lets us in on his experience and thoughts. My name is Petter Brodin. I'm a professor of pediatric immunology and a pediatrician at Karolinska Institute. In my work as a pediatrician, I gave an example of one of my patients, which was a child who was severely ill during the first days of life, And it was due to an inborn error of immunity, causing inflammation and really severe organ damage. And the point of the story was to illustrate how we can use methodologies that are readily available in research settings, but absent in clinical labs. We have this great divide currently between what's possible in the research situation and what is sort of lacking in the clinical lab situation and that we need to kind of bridge these gaps to advance care in many instances. Yeah, because in the end of the day you could help the child and is now healthily growing up. So what can you do to bridge this gap and the divide between the clinics and the research lab? Yeah, so the, the fundamental challenge here is that these are tests that are complicated to perform 
and they are not performed every day. So every clinical lab in the country will not be able to set this up. So we need to centralize some of these specialized tests. And I think in Sweden we have a unique opportunity because of the Science for Life laboratory, the government in national infrastructure, that could provide a place, a reference lab, where some of these complicated tests could be established and then used to serve patients all over Sweden. You were also talking a little bit about precision medicine, yeah. and this is something that has been talked about for quite a while, ever since I started with the mm. science communication, actually. Mm. Why is it taking so much time to implement it? So precision medicine is about trying to tailor someone's care towards that individual. But so far, precision medicine has been entirely focused on genetics, which is the genetic material of a patient and the DNA. And the problem is that the DNA does not hold the entire solution. And as I illustrated with my case, that patient was genome sequenced. And it could not help us understand what was going on with that patient but we had to complement the genetic material or the information with functional testing. And then we could make sense of the genetics. And so I think this is what's been lacking in precision medicine, is to add this layer of functional testing on top of the genetics. Both are important, but one of them alone is not enough usually. What can you, as a, both as a physician, but also as a researcher, do to change this? How can you make your voice heard in this? I'm trying, and I think everybody is, is listening. I mean, politicians and funders and people are realizing that this is an important task. I think we have one challenge, which is that there's a regional leadership that is involved in managing healthcare, and they are different in different regions in Sweden while funding for research is typically national. And I th think we need to bridge some of these challenges. We have to overcome some of these challenges to find common ground. Again, I think Science for Life Laboratory, which is a national infrastructure, can really make an important impact here by implementing some of these technologies and making them available for everyone. A little bit of a change of track here. We have just lived through a pandemic, are still in it. Uh, during the pandemic, we have seen you on the national news quite a few times, commenting mm. and answering questions. Can you share some of that experience with us, the public outreach? So I think that's a really important duty for me and for other experts, because the public deserves to get good information from trusted experts. And if we don't do it, others will fill the void. And those others might be people who have agendas that we don't want to promote, people who are less qualified. And so I think it's important for us as scientists, as physicians, with particular expertise, to speak about those subjects that we actually know. We don't need to talk about everything. I try to be very specific in the things that I'm commenting on. But when it comes to issues related to children and children's immune system, I think it's important to try to answer the questions that the public has. What kind of reactions do you get when you have been on the news? It varies quite a bit depending on the topic and so on. And for me, it's been largely positive reactions. I think a lot of people feel that, or they tell me at least, that they feel that they can sort of trust the information I'm bringing. It seems to be perceived as rooted in knowledge and science rather than just general beliefs. And I think that's important because that's what I try to do. 
There are always people who are unhappy with what you say in public because they have a different opinion, and that's okay. We have to have some room for differences as well. For me, it's been largely quite positive. After two eventful days, with lots of discussions, food for thought and interesting interactions, I met again with Ulf Landegien and Nina Schiller, two of the organizers of the symposium, to close the circle. Yes, uh, well, I'm Ulf Landegien, a retired professor of molecular medicine, but still active, <coughs> and I have been in charge of the Uh, program Measurable Human at SCAS uh, as part of the Natural Science Program. My name is uh, Nina Schiller and I'm a SCAS Thunberg Fellow. I also work with Ulf Lannigan as a researcher. And Ulf, you have been on this podcast before, actually as the first guest. Mm-hmm, yeah. So it's nice to meet again. Mm-hmm. Likewise. <laughs> yes, so you have just had this symposium for two days, opening the ivory tower wide. If we go back to the beginning, how did you decide on this topic? Yeah, I'm not quite sure what the thought process was, <clears throat> but it comes relatively naturally. It's a important problem in general, and it also speaks to an activity that has long roots in Uppsala. I think we have a longer tradition of working closely between academia and industry, but uh, lately that has become almost a demand worldwide and also in Sweden. So one of the topics we discussed was if we're possibly overdoing it, having two strong requirements of scientists that they should have impact. There is a balance between the demand for impact and the freedom of research. I think also when we were talking about the different topics before we decided for this topic was that we considered also the fact that during uh, the pandemic, the society also got very engaged in science and what type of sciences being carried out at the universities. They started to know what is RNA, what is protein, what is a virus. Can there be a new pandemic? So we also thought it's quite good to sort of have a topic where you look at what type of research do you have at the universities and how can they come out to the society? And yet another reason, of course, is that our lab is quite active in uh, trying to bring our research results out into the industrial setting to make them more broadly available. I was thinking a little bit about the ivory tower. First of all, Ulf, can you tell us where does this expression actually come from, the ivory tower? It's occurred in many contexts and it's meant to be a somewhat impractical construction, having something very elitist or very exquisite. It would be very difficult to build a tower of ivory, obviously. The author Henry James uh, referred to it as uh, as an expression for what the uh, university can be like, particularly if they're closed among, upon themselves. I think in, in our case, I, I believe it was Eric Ulros who selected this title because it's a term that's sometimes used to refer, perhaps in a derogatory way, to universities, how we're We are doing things for the purpose of ourselves and uh, our friends, but not so much to have any consequences outside of academia. He proposed the title of overturning the ivory tower, which I thought was a little too violent. I, I don't think we want to crush the universities, but opening it wide so that we can get out and people can get in. I think that was the purpose. I had Kalle Hallin here just two days ago in the studio, and he said he doesn't like the expression the ivory tower because he feels very much 
as a part of the society. And I was also thinking about this, that, I mean, science is a part of society and scientists should be doing things that are good for society, that are useful for society. Do you have any thoughts on this? I think there's good grounds to use the term ivory tower. We become famous to the extent that we become famous because we publish in journals and uh, we get promoted and so forth. And uh, the world outside may not care so much what we do. We're measured according to these intra-academic qualities. And there's no real demand that any of what we do should have meaning outside of academia. I think the general public is uh, deeply interested in many of the things that we do do, not only when they can buy a drug or something, but also understanding uh, the origin of mankind or the, uh, the structure of the universe. Those are topics that anybody can relate to, and we could be more interactive. Not everything has to lead up to lucrative companies, but there are many other aspects of outreach. But in medicine, of course, it's a special case there. We are really in business to try to help the health of people so that we have a special uh, requirement to do meaningful work. I would uh, maybe contradict Kalle a little bit there. I think uh, there is a real ivory tower problem. There was one little irony that I noticed that uh, there was a lot of talking about how do you measure impact, how do you measure outreach. And I thought coming from a lab where you measure a lot of things, then I mean, what are your thoughts on this measuring of of outreach or impact on society? Yeah, I, I was a little surprised, and I think I said so <clears throat> at this discussion. There was concern that we don't really know how to measure impact, but we don't know how to measure any research. We're really poor in measuring scientific productivity. Often it's a matter of counting publications or possibly counting publications in a select few premier journals which is a very crude way of trying to evaluate research. So I think impact is no harder than evaluating research careers in general. But it's a very important topic. When we publish things, we do it obviously to share knowledge and information, but we also publish to promote our careers. It's a very important function, and the journals are very well aware of that, of course, that we are captive audience for, for them. We have to contribute in order to promote our own careers and getting our grants and so forth. Right now, there's a trend of um, increasing open publishing, and Europe has the EOS European Open Science Cloud Initiative. But I think it's important that if we are going to replace the current publishing, we have to realize that we need to fulfill both functions, both sharing information, but also helping decide who should get the next grant, who should get the next professorship, because that's an important function. In terms of topics for discussion, we are considering whether we should try to organize yet another symposium along this. The time for the Erling Persson funding is running out, so we won't have too much time we might be able to squeeze in. And then things like how to measure research and evaluate research, I think is very important. And uh, as you say, it's an irony that uh, the whole business is about measuring things and we measure in a completely useless way research, or we have a rough idea, but a very unscientific way of measuring science. Another aspect of that, which we also touched upon is how do you build really premier research in institutions? If your aim is excellence, not bulk science, uh, we probably need both. But uh, if you particularly focus on how to construct institutions that can do the really groundbreaking research, how do you do that? And that would be a very interesting topic. There was one discussion during, especially during the first day when we had the smaller roundtable discussion. Is there a need for an arena where people, different people can meet, academics, 
people from the industry, other stakeholders, outreach media people, so to say. Is there a need for that and how could that look like? Yeah, you probably need more than one arena. I think there are <clears throat> different uh, requirements and uh, they will not be fulfilled by just one-off uh, events like this one. For instance, most of our students obviously will not stay in academia, although the, the teachers by definition are in academia. The students need to learn about the world outside also and get contact so that they can get interesting jobs and so forth. Industry may have demands on what types of training we should give our students which may be difficult if we only read the scientific literature and don't know what's important in the businesses. So there's a great need for interactions. One format that already exists, Professor Bo Sundquist, when he was vice-chancellor of the university, he started the Academic Senate, which is an opportunity for people to meet across different departments or faculties within the university, including students and professors and all sorts of levels. So that's one attempt, uh, but I don't think there's any representation of industry in, in that context. Uh, so it will not fulfill all goals. But I, I believe the Senate is quite an important um, part of this. It's often a great joy to meet colleagues from completely different parts of the university. There's so much knowledge and enthusiasm about things that you never hear about. So it's always uh, very invigorating when you get to meet them. And also the environment that we are in, the fact that the university is so close to the science park where all these startups and well-established companies are already situated. So that sort of allows for a nice environment for these people at these different sites to interact. And in the context of SCAS, you could see it during the symposium that many of the people from the other side of the road were there interacting with the scientists and full audience students so it was a good arena so more of these i think one question here is what is the optimal format and probably there is not a single format that's uh, the best this was the second installation of uh, this symposia but after the first one we were discussing briefly of trying to make it something that would be more permanent and uh, sort of happen more automatically there's quite a lot of effort organizing it every time and reinventing a lot of solving problems and so forth so if you could have it sustained and uh, just plug in different topics, but you have all the groundwork done and uh, all the organization in place, that could also be very helpful and uh, maybe make it easier for people to come also because they would know about it if they know that uh, twice every semester there is one of these events, so let's plan for being there. Another thing that I just wanted to say was that early on, when we were deciding about the topic and how the setup would be, I remember that Ulf kept on saying it should not be a seminar or a symposium online because that is quite boring. And I think we really achieved this, what you were thinking of, having a physical meeting where people actually can interact during the coffee breaks or with their questions. It was a bit more dynamic. Part of the purpose of this was to get people to get to know each other. Maybe we could have had an even broader outreach, but uh, we did cover quite some ground. And I think many people met others that they had never met before but that would be very relevant for their own work and their interests overall i think it was a success we were blessed with nice weather this time of the year we had been able to attract an interesting group of people with complementary expertise and interests in the question of the outreach of universities 
So we were able to penetrate that from many different angles, both in the first close discussion the first day and also in the public symposium. I think there's a need for events like this, and there aren't so many of them. I also noticed that many people that came in the audience at the second day, they commented they really enjoyed this setup and the topic, and it allowed them to really see how important this topic is, and it made them interact with many different people from different subjects. They really It took the time and effort to talk to each other and enjoy the conversations and meetings. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCUS Talk Spotlight, focusing on the event Opening the Ivory Tower Wide, held at SCUS in May 2022. My name is Nathalie van der Leer, and I have talked to Evelina Vogelscher, David Sumter, Kalle Heldin, Lars Kalmfors, Gunnar Ingelmann, Sven Widmalm, Shirin Albeck Örberg, Petter Budin, Ulf Landegen and Nina Schiller. A big thank you to everyone for contributing with your thoughts and ideas how academia can reach out to society. The symposium was organized in the framework of the theme Measurable Human within the Natural Sciences program at SCAS. The organizers were Nina Schiller, Eric Ulleros, Christopher Rubin and Ulf Landegen. In the very first episode of SCAS Talks, you can hear more about the research of Ulf Landegen and the theme Measurable Human. SCAS Talks is available on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. Just search for SCAS Talks and subscribe to us. That way you won't miss any new content. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend this episode, and SCAS Talks in general for that matter, to a colleague or friend. We have more than 30 episodes now, featuring a wide variety of topics, which is reflecting the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. Look for your favorite topic or dive into something completely new. Thank you for listening, and bye for now.